listening to the Bible 126 show. Let's do something radical. Let's go before the Lord, huh? You know, so often, I have, to, I have to confess, so often I'm so wrapped up in the last minute details, finishing up certain slides, making sure the projectors were, all that stuff, that I often jump in, failing to do the most important thing that we all need to do. We never go into the Word of God without going in prayer. Even if you pick up a Bible to read, you always pray first, if you're, if you're, because it's a supernatural thing, not an not a intellectual thing. Let's bow our hearts. Father. We thank you for this privilege of gathering together to study your word. We do pray, Father, you'd open our hearts and lives to your word. And we pray, Father, that your purpose would be accomplished in each of us as we undertake this exploration of your precious word and as we commit ourselves into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, we are in Genesis session 8. And since we had an introductory session... The, seventh, the eighth session is on the seventh day, so our creation week segment is actually eight sessions long. And so, uh, in a sense, this is a conclusion of what you might call unit one of Genesis, which is the conclusion of what some people would call the creation week. The next major segment would be the first 11 chapters. As you look at the book of Genesis, the first 11 chapters are distinctive, because some people would call them prehistory, because the story really starts in a historical sense uh, with Abraham, call of Abraham ch chapter 12. So you'll find many commentaries. It will be the first 11 chapters of Genesis and then from 12 to the end because it, it, it changes uh, it, 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 its whole style in a sense. But we're in the seventh day, and that's obviously chapter 2. We've taken uh, seven sessions to get through one chapter. So let's see, there's 50 chapters in Genesis. So it sounds to me like it'll be, what, 350 sessions? No, it obviously won't be linear. I'm, I'm just being facetious. We started off with the introduction where we talked about the authorship. We proved we know who wrote the book of Genesis, despite uh, people with PhDs and H2SO4s behind their name who have other theories, because none other than the Lord Jesus Christ told us who wrote the book. And I'll, that's good enough for me. And we, we talked a little bit about the nature of time. In fact, we've littered the whole series with little segments of physics and so forth, uh, it surprises many that the more you know about the real science, the frontiers of real science, not conjectures and people's theories, but what we really do think we know about the universe, the more you know about that, the more comfortable the chapter reads, frankly. But we talked in day one about light, and, and uh, we also explored some conjectures about that area. Talked about the nature in the second day, the stretching the heavens, the nature of space itself. And the more you know about that, the more comfortable the, the text is. And uh, then we got into the actual the beginning of life, vegetation, so forth, or, or uh, molecular chemistry we touched on a little bit, the anthropic principle. Then we got into the stars and the planets, the nebular hypothesis, and some of the nonsense that gets still, ta til still taught in astronomy courses. That's provably nonsense. And then we got into the fish and fowl, the beginning of animals as such, 
and the fallacy of evolution. We touched on that again, biodiversity. We talked about uh, animals and man last time, the creation of Adam. That's, in a sense, the climax of God's creative process. And uh, we talked about the evidences of design, and, and we talked a little bit, explored about the ar architecture of man. That itself is a whole, a whole uh, subject, but we touched on it here. And this time we are in Shabbat, Saturday, as we would call it, perhaps, the seventh day. And we're going to take, in a sense, the whole chapter, chapter two. Our major topics will be, of course, Mr. and Mrs. Mann and uh, several other things. So let's just jump in. Now, again, by way of review, we've, we've tried to provide a map of uh, the creation, creative process in terms of its stepwise stepping towards order from chaos. Entropy is a fancy term for randomness or disorder. And uh, we see the, each, uh, the term Erev and Bokar today mean evening and morning, but they have, like most words, have an ancient origin that's somewhat obscure. But the, the root Erev suggests chaos or disorder. And in a sense, as it, when the day comes to an end and things get dark, you become, it's, it's harder to discern order and, and, and so forth. And we think that word originally meant chaos or disorder and became to mean, it came through usage to mean evening. And Bokar, which is just the opposite of that, that's things are discernible. In the morning, as light starts, twilight starts, you can look around, you suddenly can see where you are. This is very visible, by the way, if you've ever gone camping. You know, if you, if you often you can go to a campsite, you may arrive after dark and you sort of set up the best you can. But when you get up in the morning early, you discover all kinds of things you didn't discern before. The Erev and Bokar, this concept, is very much, very much uh, more visible if you uh, uh, have those experiences. Anyway. But what we do, the, the Erev and Bokar are the first day, day one. And again, it's, Erev, the, the, they become meaning evening and morning. But it's also a strange way to designate a day because a day would go from evening to evening. Go, Erev and Bokar is presumed by most readers, well, that's just designating the day. Well, that means their days were only night times. <laughs> no, we think it originally had a slightly different meaning. It's been lost through the ages. But in any case, uh, the we, first day we had, of course, the creation of light. We talked about its, the paradoxes of light. And day two, second day, we talked about the fourth state of matter, plaza, as we get order into atoms and they become molecules and so forth. And then we, uh, that was day two. And then the Erev and Boker, we saw the land, the vegetation and so forth. And we have day three. And then on, day, uh, on the fourth day we have the planets. It's interesting that vegetation was created before the sun is dealt with. But in any case, we'll move on. And then we have uh, the two, two classes of animals focused on, uh, the, the sea creatures and, and birds and so forth. We talked about that. And then we get to the climax, in a sense, and that is the sixth day, the creation of Adam, among other things. And mammals, too, but Adam we focused on. And, but now we get into a very strange day, and I've gone this through this review. I know you remember it from the previous times. Primarily to make this point, the seventh day has no Erev and no Boker, which is a first clue, by the way, that the real meaning of those words may have predated their usage as evening and morning as they're commonly used today in Hebrew. But the seventh day certainly is not continuing because we're going to discover when we look at the text that God rested. It doesn't say he's resting, he rested. In other words, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interval. And, uh, and yet it has no Erev and Boker. So, Whatever the distinctives are of day seven, seventh day, is a clue as to what the Erev and Boker mean. And so there is no Erev and Boker, because on the seventh day, God ended his work that he had made. 
So the Erv and Boker we, we take, uh, at least as a, as a as conjecture, are, are denotations of steps of, of infusing design into the universe. But uh, let's move on. Let's just jump in and look at the text. Genesis chapter 2, verse, first couple of verses. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And I want you to notice, it says rested, not his resting. See, some people say, well, these days are really epochs. And the seventh, we're in the seventh day. You know, they try, they try to use it as, a, as, a, as just a figure of speech kind of thing. Well, that, that, that uh, does violence to the text, frankly. There are no day epoch theories uh, that will operate with this text. We should believe, mean, recognize God means what he says and says what he means. He finished his creation work. God isn't finished, but he's finished with the creation. Why? Because he's going to un be undertaking an even greater work. What would that be called? Redemption. Good for you. Good for you. There's two major concepts that we can talk about. And let me just digress here for a moment. The creation and the redemption. The creation, one of the things that really came home to me is we've gone, we've taught Genesis several times through, you know, in, in our program as a ministry. So I know this is, what, a third or fourth time perhaps going through it systematically. But I have to tell you, going through it this time, it came home to me more vividly than ever before that the, the creation, the concept of the creation is far more important than most of us realize. We naturally realize it's foundational because all your worldview uh, notions derive from your concept. We're either here by accident or we're here by design. If by design, then you've got accountability and so forth. It's deeper than that. It's interesting that as you go through the entire scripture, how again and again and again, God holds everyone accountable to know him through his creation. We may be limited in our backgrounds. We may not have the benefit of, say, being in a Jewish background with all its benefits. We may, not, we may come from a Gentile background that has no awareness of anything, for you know, whatever, some pagan background. He still holds us accountable to understand the creation. It, it, it started, Romans 1 is the classic example, but what's interesting to me, all through the scripture, if you're watching for it, you realize that the creation holds us all accountable in and of itself. But now how important is the creation how compared to the redemption? One way you measure, there's two ways to measure that. One way is how much space in the Bible is devoted to it. Well, in the creation has, what, a couple of chapters in Genesis. We're through that now. We're on our way. So we had two, say, call two chapters there. There's probably three or four in Job, perhaps. There's a couple of chapters in Isaiah, a few Psalms. And that's about it. If you're really interested in the creation, you can... It doesn't take you long to corral most of what the Bible says about the creation. You know, half a dozen, maybe at most a dozen chapters. What is it, how much of the Bible is devoted to the redemption? Oh boy, from chapter 3 on. Book of Genesis lays down the foundation of redemption. Book of Exodus is their redemption from Egypt. Leviticus, the rest of it. You go, you go, certainly the prophets, it's all what it's all about. The Gospels. The epistles. In fact, the climactic book of the entire Bible, Revelation. It's about what? The redemption. So you need to realize that's important. Now, there's another way to measure things. That What did it cost him? What did it cost God to create the universe? 
six days and he called it into existence? I'm not trying to minimize it, quite the contrary, but, you know, can, can, he can do that again. What did the redemption cost him? The death of his son. And that won't be repeated. No, this is, uh, this is uh, interesting. So, okay, uh, enough of uh, de dealing with all that. The creation is completed as of this chapter. Done, behind us. The redemption is completed in a sense in John 19, verse 30. When Jesus on the cross says, it is finished. What's finished? The creation? No, that was long ago. No, what's finished? Redemption. He's done it. The, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was not a tragedy. It was an achievement that God laid down an intricate design. We, you know, we look around the creation, we realize that God is a skillful designer. Whether you're looking through a microscope or a telescope, you can't help but be in awe of his skill as a designer. And the redemption is even more intricate. And I think we'll be spending an eternity learning the subtleties and insights that are right before us in the text, but that would defy entire lifetime of devotion try to unravel it all. But, uh, so, okay, um, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, all the host of them, and on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made, and God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God had made. Now there is a slightly different view of this from the highly venerated ancient rabbis. I'm not here to sell this particular view. I share it with you just to stretch your own imaginations. Because most of us take the view from the text that God rested. That's what it says. And I'm not saying he didn't, but it may not be really what it means. One of the highest, most venerated of the Hebrew sages in the 12th century was, actually 13th century, was Maimonides. And uh, Maimonides and Nachmanides are probably the two most venerated rabbinical scholars within the, the Jewish community. In his famous work called The Guide to Perplexed, in part 1, chapter 67, in dealing with this verse, he views what the Hebrew really implies is that the Creator caused a repose to encompass the universe. It's not God that's really resting. He's imposing a rest on the universe is the, is the thrust of the Hebrew in the minds of the ancient experts. Well, that's rather provocative, and I've got several books written on this whole issue because when we look at the field of thermodynamics, there's some basic laws there that apply to all science. The first law, most of you are familiar with, the conservation of matter and energy. Matter and energy cannot be created or destroyed. It can be, matter and energy can be interchanged. That's what the E equals MC squared business of Einstein is all about. But basically, you can't create or destroy matter. You can convert to energy and back again, whatever. But, so that's the first law. There's no way to win. You can't come out ahead. Okay. In fact, the conservation of matter and energy is in the scripture. On the seventh day, God ended his work. There's no new matter to create. No, all energy that is necessary has been put in place. The universe is like a gigantic clock wound up that's been winding down. There's a day when it'll end. The great discovery of modern science is the universe had a beginning. No kidding. And it also will have an end, ultimately. And, uh, and uh, Hebrews 4 says the same thing. The, the works were finished from the foundation of the world. It's completed. There's not new creation going on. By the way, that's the other fallacy of evolution. 
you see. All things that are therein, you preserve them all, Nehemiah 9.6. That's the first law. Now, the second law of thermodynamics is even more fundamental and important to understand. We call it the entropy laws, the bondage of decay. And that really is, it really says that, that uh, whenever you have an energy transfer, there's always a loss. You don't have 100% efficiency anywhere. In fact, most engines you use are, have an efficiency of something between 30 to 60%. 50-60% is a dramatic engineering achievement because there's always losses. The car gets warm, the heat goes out to the atmosphere, it warms the ambient. You know, you're, you've got losses. And that's all, that's all part of the second law, which is also not just in thermodynamics, but it's also operative in all fields of science. It's, the infra, it's, it's, it's the really one of the bases for the whole field of information sciences. And uh, the, the, it's the signal-to-noise ratios and things. We talked about that enough. You're familiar with it. But uh, I, I like to summarize the first law is there's no way to win. The second law is there's no way to even break even, <laughs> you see. You'll always have a loss whenever you make a transfer of some kind. There's a third law that most people aren't, it's more sophisticated, I guess, but you can't get out of the game. That's a whole other thing. But let's talk about entry in Scripture. We've talked about this. This is by way of review. In Psalm 102, Psalm says, They shall perish and grow old as a garment. The earth, in Isaiah 51, 6, the earth will grow old like a garment. Heaven and earth will pass away in Matthew 24, verse 35. So I mention that because it's not as if it's forever. You know, we have a tendency, and there are many scientists who assume that the, it's gonna, you know, things go on forever. No, they're all wearing down. There's a lesson in that. There's a, profound, there's a profundity in there. Now, one of the interesting things, in Romans chapter 8, verse 21, Paul says that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the glorious liberty of the children of God. Now, he's speaking of spiritual terms here, but it's very fundamental because he's talking about the creation. He's not talking about some spiritual concept here in, in the usual sense. He's talking about the creation itself apparently is subject to the bondage of decay. That's what we would call the entropy laws. The important point is Paul says the day is coming when it's going to be free of that. It's our conjecture that it may have been free of that before Genesis 3. You see, that may be part of the curse we're going to study in our next session. But the main emphasis I want to get across is everything we know, or think we know, about the creation is from Genesis 3 onward. Because Peter says, you know, the, the, the old world that, you know, perished. In fact, the world he's talking about was the flood world. That's a whole other thing we'll get to when we get to 6 and on. But this idea of thermal decay, heat flows always from hot bodies to cold bodies. You've noticed that. If the universe was infinitely old, the temperature would be uniform. But it's not uniform. In, the, in fact, all, all energy throughout the universe is a function of the, re, the remaining temperature differences. So it isn't, it isn't uh, uniform, therefore it's not infinitely old, and therefore it had a beginning. It's a, a very simple, irrefutable logic there. And so, it's, of course, dead. it's destined for an ending, too. Although, I don't want to imply the ending may be, as a result of that, the ending may be intervention, naturally. And we've talked about the Big Bang on the one end and the heat death on the other. These, that's the way science bounds our physical universe, and they try to say, we've talked about that. But let's get back to these. Let's, let's read these again now in another sense. Let's set aside the physics. I think we've had enough physics in the last half a dozen sessions. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. The seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And get verse 3. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. 
And uh, your problem with the whole idea of seven days, six days creation isn't from Genesis. You can, do all, you can mess around with the words, what they might mean. Your problem is Exodus 20, verse 11, where God, with his own finger, wrote in stone that it was in six days. He sanctified the seventh, so likewise you're to keep your seventh day holy. So this opens the whole Pandora's box of what about Shabbat? Now, I like to start this in a strange way. How many of each animal did Noah take into the ark? Anyone? Seven and two. Good for you. Everybody knows two, but those of you that have done your homework understand there's seven because you have two each of the unclean, right? And you get seven each of the clean. We presume that that's so they'll have something for our sacrifices. But the question that everybody misses is how did Noah know what were clean and unclean? Those are not intrinsic to the animals. Those are ceremonial definitions in which in, in, in the Torah, in Leviticus, Deuteronomy and Leviticus both, you have detailed discussion that this one is and this one ain't, you know. The stork's an unclean bird, but a dove, you know. And you can, you, you can try to draw some parallels to try to cluster them, but you'll discover, upon close examination, they are very arbitrary. Some of them are hygienic issues, but that's not why they're called clean and unclean. They're defined that way. Here's the point is, how did Noah know? See, you and I take for granted what we know about those things from the Torah, from the five books of Moses, Right? Noah is a long way back from Moses, right? How did Noah know these terms? Any guesses? They were ordained in Eden. They were taken for granted. And you'll see why. This is just one example. But here's a good example because Noah understood this and he is... He, I could use it with my tongue in my cheek. He wasn't Jewish. See, he's long before Abraham, right? But he knew what clean and unclean was. You will not understand Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel, unless you understand that now. These were ceremonial definitions. They are ordained in Genesis, but they're codified in Leviticus. You with me? It's important to understand because it's only one example. There are lots of ideas that have their roots in Eden, right? Clean and unclean being one example. You don't really come up with that until Genesis 7, but we're back in Genesis 2, aren't we? The concept of a kinsman redeemer is in Genesis because God in chapter 3 is going to tip Adam off that he's going to be redeemed by the seed of the woman. You see, there's the, hint, the first hint that God's plan and God's man, he knows it's coming. He's got a kinsman redeemer in mind. In fact, it goes, he also, in chapter 3, will give them, there's the first hint of a substitutionary atonement. We'll deal with that when we get to chapter 3. But the reason I'm getting into it here is it's my argument that the Sabbath was ordained in Genesis 2. You saw it in, chapter, in verse 3. Don't confuse that with the fact that it also shows up in the Ten Commandments. And it shows up as a major emblem for the nation of Israel. You follow me? It's not limited to them. 
God ordained the seventh day, the Shabbat, in Genesis 2. Now, let me put you at ease. I'm not heading down the Seventh-day Adventist road, okay? Because there, there are all kinds of views about the issue of Sabbath for Gentiles, especially. Um, and there are many, many variations of that. And I'm not here to ship a particular package to you. I just want to make this point. Anyone that thinks that this is a simple issue hasn't studied it. It's not simple at all. We are not under the law, and I'm going to emphasize that before you're through. So if any of you are getting a little butterfly, where's Chuck heading with this? Be careful. Let me just let you know that. But at the same time, we're going to talk pretty candidly about some of these different views here. See, your problem is not Genesis. Your problem is Exodus 20. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth. It's clear in the context here he's, he's expecting us to understand what he means by days. He's not talking thousand-year days. He's talking days. Are they 24 hours or 25? I don't know. You know, that, that's a whole other issue. Who cares? For, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. Wow. And rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and hallowed it. When did he do that? On the seventh day. Back there. It's memorialized the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day. It means, in other words, he's not telling you something new. He's just reminding you to hallow it. You follow me? Okay. The Sabbath. God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because it, he rested from all the work which he had created and made. And Exodus 20, verse 8, remember to keep the Sabbath, Sabbath the Sabbath day to keep it holy. He intends this day to be set aside. Okay. It's established here in Genesis 2, but I want to prove to you that it was practiced before the Ten Commandments were given. And you do that in um, Exodus 16. You remember when they, in Exodus 16, they're out of Egypt now. They are hungry. They need to be fed. And in Exodus 16, this peculiar phenomenon called manna is provided. But if you read Exodus 16, it tells them, you collect it for six days, but on the sixth day, collect twice as much because there won't be any on the seventh day. You follow me? If you try to store it on any other day, it spoils. But on the sixth day, you can get twice as much to last you through the sea. You're only supposed to take a day's ration worth. You, you follow me? Well, setting aside the manna issue, that's a whole other study, recognize they understood this as a practice. The Sabbath day was a day set aside before they were given the law. They're not given the law until chapter 20 of Exodus. The manna thing happened in chapter 16 of Exodus. So I think we need to recognize that in the scripture, the, obs the observance of the seven, uh, one day and seven, the Shabbat, preceded uh, everything else. In fact, uh, there are many experts that believe that uh, Enoch, uh, uh, Noah, lots of others, long before Moses, Understood, one day and seven. The Babylonian calendar had one day and seven on. That goes you know, early to so much for that. So what confuses the picture is that the Sabbath will also become a distinctive of Israel. God sets these people aside to be his example, and he tells them to observe the Sabbath, keep it holy. And it becomes a distinctive of the Jews. The reason it's such a distinctive of the Jews is because nobody else follows through. We 
Don't even worship on Sunday, let alone Saturday, so I won't get down, I won't go down that path. The Sabbath becomes distinctive as Israel, according to Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 4, and 5, and so on. But out of this, of course, comes a whole bunch of mosaic laws that I will not drag you through, of course, concerning the Sabbath. All kinds of rules. For example, you could not kindle a fire on the Sabbath. That was forbidden. You need to also understand that all these instructions are to separate them from the paganism that is, th is throughout the region that they're going to be settling in. So the, the, the prescriptions here are very precise. The penalty, get this though, get this, the penalty for profaning the Sabbath day by doing any work was death. You know, let that sink in for a minute. You know, it's one thing to get your wrist slapped. It's nothing to, you know, be uh, grounded from being able to go out with your friends or whatever. You know, the kinds of things we typically do to make a point to someone. No, this was death. Which is another reason that some of the rules got very explicit because they were life-threatening things. And of course, the, as the rules, you know, by, by the way, uh, it, it, despite this background, the priests still carried on their work in the tabernacle. The temple itself, when it comes later, is full of activities. So people in the, in, in the, in the ministry were busy, busy, busy. That didn't, didn't apply to them. The rite of circumcision was on the eighth day after a child was born, whether or not it was Sabbath day. If the eighth day was a Sabbath, a Sabbath day and they weren't supposed to do any work, they still circumcised the child on Sabbath day. Now, of course, this, there are all kinds of abuses. They didn't really do a very good job at this, and so the prophets really speak up about this. Isaiah condemned the hypocrisy of the worshipers in Isaiah chapter 1, among other places. He defined true Sabbath-keeping as turning from one's own ways and own pleasures and taking delight in the Lord. That's what it's all about, to take six days, do your thing on the seventh day, set it aside and focus your attention, at least, on the Lord. That's the, that was the concept. Isaiah 58 is the, deals with that. There are other prophets, too, uh, you know, raised their protests against the abuse. Of, uh, Jeremiah is full of it, and Ezekiel and Amos and so on. The destruction of Jerusalem and the captivity of the Jews in Babylon, that we read so much about in the Scripture, was, as due as, uh, was due to their desecration of the Sabbath, among other things. In fact, why were they in captivity for 70 years? Second Chronicles 36, verse 20 and 21 tell you the reason they were in captivity for 70 years is because for, for 490 years they failed to keep the sabbatical year. So God says, you owe me 70. And that isn't some commentator's quip. It's expressed at the end of Second Chronicles 36. Check it out. God takes his instructions for the Sabbath and sabbatical years seriously. Now, I'm not suggesting that we are legally bound to follow those rules. Don't misunderstand me. But we do get the impression that God wants us to understand that he takes the Sabbath seriously. And what he's after isn't the rules. What he's after is our focus of attention. See, in later times, they perverted their, the Sabbath with their traditions. Well, that, of course, led to the exile. Hosea predicted that God would make Israel's Sabbaths to cease because of her unfaithfulness in Hosea chapter 2. It was not meant to be permanent. Isaiah and Ezekiel emphasized that. Because they, it, it, while they condemn them for not keeping the Sabbath, they point to the day when it will be restored someday. All those promises of the millennium and stuff were encouragements that someday these, this cloud will be lifted. Nehemiah 
was shocked when he, when he finally gets to Jerusalem and he realizes how far they've fallen. He institutes in Nehemiah 13 a whole bunch of reforms. Nehemiah is a great book on leadership. He's quite a leader. But he institutes reforms about, uh, uh, regarding the Sabbath. So effective was his reforms that when you get successively uh, to the Maccabean period and so forth, many chose to die rather than desecrate the Sabbath, even for self-defense. When they were going to war against the Maccabees, many would refuse to go to war on Sabbath. They didn't want to violate the Sabbath. They were that intense, even though it meant their death. And, and, they, uh, and of course, they, they, they made it very clear that self-defense was, you know, the national interest was essential here. But anyway, as the years go by, the, the rules multiplied, and so did the ruses to circumvent them. And uh, it's, uh, uh, it's interesting that... Uh, Matthias, who was the leader of the revolt against the tyranny of Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, he ruled. He had a rule that it was permissible to take up arms against their, 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 their oppressors, and uh, that was a big deal. But if you go to Israel today, uh, it's, you'll be astonished as you encounter these strange things that they put on themselves. If you go to a hotel, you want to always check the, hotel, the, the, the uh, panel inside the elevator because you don't want to get in a Sabbath elevator because you'll discover that on Shabbat certain elevators are programmed to stop on every floor or they have two odd or even because the idea of touching a button to tell what floor is considered work. Now you look at that and you say these guys are crazy. See but that's the, that's the rabbinical ruling and that's the way they live. They hopefully and most cosmopolitan there is a hotel elevator that isn't a Shabbat elevator, so it'll go to the floor you push, but an Orthodox Jew can't use those. On Shabbat, he's got to use one of them that's what they call a Shabbat elevator, and it's, it's one of two kinds. either stops at every floor or it's one of two, odds and even, whatever, but so that he doesn't have to touch a button. And you look at that and you think, you know, it, you, it, it's, 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 uh, it's, uh, it's bizarre. And uh, so the more rules they make, of course, the more there are ways to circumvent them. And so you can't legislate devotion. You study this through and you go read the prophets and read the thing you, you come across. You can't legislate devotion because God is interested in the heart, not the action. And uh, Now you get to the New Testament period. We're trying to get some picture here. Okay, that was the Old Testament. That, if you were a Jew and in the Old Testament, we think we understand that. Let's get to the New Testament. Jesus, it was his custom to attend synagogue on, the, uh, on Shabbat. You know, we always read about it. All through the Gospels, he's attending the synagogue on Shabbat. And he taught, Jesus taught, the authority and validity of the Old Testament law in many, many ways. In fact, he amplified it in ways that are scary. He took it even another yard. He said, I live by the Ten Commandments. I don't think you do, but people claim they do. I live by the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, really? You think the Ten Commandments are hard? Read the Sermon on the Mount because they go right to the heart. He reinterprets the Ten Commandments in a way that's really scary. Now his emphasis always was on, not on the external observance of the law, but on a spontaneous performance of the will of God, which underlays the law. Well, you want to understand the law so you understand what God's will is, but what you want to do is be consistent with God's will, not with the letter of the law. And it's how interesting to, to if you're going to be pharisaical or legalistic, you try to obey the letter of the law and get around it by some subterfuge. That's the typical way that our culture does everything, whether it's, whether it's the tax laws or anything else.
There were six major conflicts in the, in the Gospels. He defended his disciples, you may recall, for plucking grain on the Sabbath day. And he alluded to the time of David and his men ate the bread of the presence. You may recall they were, they were all upset because the disciples were... It was legitimate when you walked by a field to take what you could do, but not on the Sabbath day. But in this case, they, they did it on the Sabbath day. And what Jesus is really all the way through this, the theme of all these conflicts is Jesus is in charge. The Sabbath was there to commemorate the creation. Who was the creator? Jesus Christ. The opening three verses of John, Colossians 2, uh, one of the great realizations. Once you really understand that Jesus Christ was the creator himself incarnate in, and, and, and had entered his creation, it explains everything else. That all these weird things going on suddenly make a lot of sense. Another time he reminded his critics that priests in the temple profaned the Sabbath and were held guiltless in, in Matthew chapter 12. In other words, there, he pointed out there's a difference between ceremonial law and, and moral law. And uh, he placed the Sabbath commandment in the category of ceremonial law. Human need takes precedent over ceremonial requirements. And he made reference also to circumcising a male on the Sabbath day. Because they did that, he points out that you know, there's, there are cases where the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now it's interesting, he actually expressed anger over those in Capernaum who showed more concern for the punctilious observance of the Sabbath than for a human being who was deprived of the use of a hand. He healed the, per the withered hand and they're all upset because he violated the Sabbath. Where are, their, where are their values? And by the way, we see that today. How many well-intended people in the, in the ecological movement are more concerned about some obscure moth than, than the feeding of families and so forth. I, it, it, you, you wonder where, you know, where they're coming from. And uh, it's not that one isn't legitimate. It's a question of which one has precedence, people or uh, dogs and animals, whatever. I know I've told you my, my daughter was really into the animal rights thing for a while. You know, and she said, Dad, when she was little, she said, you know, there are going to be animals in heaven. It must be, she thought, because there's horses. Jesus comes riding a horse. There must be animals in heaven. I says, of course there are. Of course there are. We know there are cats in heaven. He says, really, Dad? Oh, absolutely. Where else would they get the strings for the harps? <laughs> she almost hit me. <laughs> On another occasion, Jesus rebuked the ruler of the synagogue, who became indignant when he healed a woman who had a spirit of infirmity for 18 years. 18 years she has this problem. He heals her, and the ruler of the synagogue is all upset because of the Sabbath day thing, you know. Jesus asserted his lordship over the Sabbath. And let me give you an example that you won't find any list in the most commentaries. These six are very well known. There's another occasion you need to really understand that's John 2 when he turns the water into wine. Everybody's familiar with that thing, but there's a couple things you need to understand. No one knew it except his disciples. It was an inside deal, so to speak. But you need to understand, to understand what was going on there, you need to understand what water did he use. He used the water of purification, which means the home was a home of a priest, by the way, and they had this water that was specially ceremonially dealt with from the temple, but it's up there in Cana, and uh, it was used for very, very special <coughs> me, ceremonial purposes. <coughs> and he uses that water to, uh, to turn the water into wine. And uh, he's demonstrating to his private inside group Guests didn't know it. They thought it was just wine. They were complimentary. But the disciples that were paying attention suddenly realized that he's declaring himself 
higher than the Torah. He's the Lord, not just the Sabbath. He's the Lord of the purification water and everything else. So as the Lord, that's one of the first clues you get who, who we're dealing with here. There were seven healings on the Sabbath. The demonic in Capernaum in, in Mark 12, Peter's mother-in-law in Capernaum again in Mark 1. Excuse me, in, both were in Mark 1, excuse me. Uh, the impotent man in Jerusalem in John 5. The man with the withered hand in Mark 3, but also recorded in Matthew 12. The woman that was bowed together, that was in Luke 13. The man with dropsy in Luke 14. The man born blind in John 9. Seven healings were on the Sabbath. So some people say, well, Jesus always done on the Sabbath. No, those, those are recorded because they were so controversial. Because they were on the Sabbath. And uh, there, in Mark 1, there's a, there, was a, there was a healing on a Sunday, not a Saturday, a Shabbat. So, so it, don't get the impression that these seven are recorded, that they're the only ones that was all, he always healed. Some people say he always held on the Sabbath day. That's not true. He did one and he recorded in Mark. If for no other reason to point out, that wasn't the issue. The reason they're controversial, strangely, is because they're done on the Sabbath day. And uh, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Mark 2, 27. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Let's keep that in our mind as we go forward in this very thorny topic. In the early church, the early Christians, of course, were loyal Jews. No surprise, we have a Jewish gospel from Jewish leaders, from a Jewish Bible with a Jewish king and a Jewish Messiah. We need to understand our heritage. Every, every benefit you and I as Gentiles have derived from the covenant of Abraham and everything that derives from that. Now, these early Christians, though, were Jewish, and they worshipped daily at the temple in Jerusalem. You won't understand the book of Hebrews until you understand the dilemma of the Jew before the temple fell in 70 AD. From, say, from the crucifixion to the 70 AD, there's a window in there that's bizarre for a Jew because the temple's still going, and God-ordained priests are doing God-ordained practices. It's a tough, they're in a tough spot. You really won't understand that this is the Hebrews until you understand that. But anyway, they, they worshipped day in the temple, and after that, they also attended services in the synagogue in Acts 9, 13, 14, 17, and so forth. They revered the law of Moses. The early Christians were Jewish. They were Mosaic Jews. They weren't Talmudic Jews. They were they, 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 the law of Moses. Acts 20 men make that very clear. There were disputes as, Christ, as Gentiles start becoming Christians. What was imposed upon them? Big debate. Understandably, why it was a big debate, that gets resolved in Acts 15 of just what requirements a Gentile Christian had to do, and Shabbat was not one of them. Okay? That was not an issue. There were just a minimum number of things that they, get, that Jane, that they agree on and, and, and gets put into letters of, of authorization. Let's talk about Paul and the Sabbath. Paul regarded the law as a yoke of bondage from which the Christian had been set free. That's the whole thrust of Galatians, the whole thrust of the book of Romans. In fact, you can probably find it either directly or indirectly attacked on all of his epistles. The law was a yoke of bondage from which the Christian was set free. That's what the good news is all about. Many of the things in the law were prophetic. They were typological. They were teaching. And if you really want to understand that, get our briefing pack on the seven feasts of Moses and really get into that. Paul made no distinction between moral and ceremonial law. It was all part of the old covenant, which was done away in Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.14 is an example. You find many verses that say the same thing. In fact, in Colossians 2.14, he says that the, the handwriting of these ordinances were nailed to the cross. He's using an idiom from 
from, uh, from prison. When you served, when you were in, uh, uh, declared guilty, you had a debt to society that was an actual debt instrument. That's where the term comes from. You owed society a debt. You were five years in prison. The jailer had that document. Every time you served a year, it would be annotated. And, when, and, and uh, if you escaped th after the third of your five-year five things, the remaining, the unpaid two years, the prisoner had to pay. I mean, the, the, uh, the prison keeper, the, the guy in charge. When you finally served your five years, they'd take that document and say, paid in full. And authorize it and give it to you. In the Greek, that was tetelestai. In John 19.30, when Jesus is on the cross, it's translated, it is finished. The word is tetelestai in the Greek. You can translate it, it is finished. Paid in full is what the word is. He wrote tetelestai across the certificate of debt. Your debt was paid in full on that cross. That doesn't mean, that doesn't give you a license. It just means that the, 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 the guilt, the shame, the payment for that has been provided completely in Christ. And to try to add to that is blasphemy. The Sabbath and other festivals, new moons and what have you, are declared to be, by Paul in Colossians 2, only a shadow of what's to come. The reason these festivals are there were not just commemorative, they were that too, but they were primarily prophetic. And as prophecy unfolds, we're going to discover relationships among those festivals and things that will astonish us as, it, as, as we understand them better. The great tragedy of the church in the very early years, it became anti-Semitic. And it abandoned the Old Testament. In fact, in most churches today, they teach the New Testament. Most, most Christians, if they know any part of the Bible, they, know new. they don't know the Old Testament. What a tragedy. We don't understand the New because its roots are in the Old. That's where you are way ahead if you recognize it's a single book. The New Testament did not obsolete the Old. It fulfilled it. There's a big difference. Galatians 4 and Colossians 2 also says to observe, where Paul says, quote, to observe days, months, and seasons and years is to be slaves to, quote, the weak and beggarly elemental spirits. It's very interesting. If you read Paul, you'll notice people who live by the rules are considered weaker in faith than those that understand their freedom in Christ. Don't misunderstand that as license to sin. Don't misunderstand me. But adhering to these ceremonial procedures is a shelter from what God is really after, and that's your heart. The observance of days, in Romans 14, first six verses, the observance of days is a characteristic of, quote, the man who is weak in faith. See, someone who's stronger in faith, there'll be situations where he'll obey the rules so that the weaker in faith won't stumble. But notice who's the weaker in faith, the one that's following the rules. The stronger in faith may obey the rules to, to, in, in deference to not offend the weaker in faith. You, 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 watch those logic in, in Romans 14 and elsewhere. Paul deals with that. Now the question, well, what about the apostolic practice? Well, after his resurrection, they always point out he appeared to his disciples on four successive Sundays. So that's where they get this idea that Sunday becomes then the day of commemoration of his resurrection. I'm not knocking that. I'm saying this is where it's hanging on. In fact, Pentecost, which is the birth of the church was by definition on a Sunday. So those are the arguments made to why we practice on Sunday. I'm not knocking it, don't misunderstand me, but I think there's a mistake to assume that Sunday replaces Shabbat. They're two different things. And we choose appropriately to honor the Lord's resurrection by celebrating Sunday. No problem with that, not, not disparaging it. But there's a bridge that 
the, the, the church has crossed that you cannot find scriptural support for, that somehow Sunday replaced Shabbat. Not under the law. Don't misunderstand me. Now, some maintain that the ascension occurred on a Sunday, but that's a problem because with 40 days intervening between resurrection and ascension, it, and the, <laughs> you don't get 40 days between two Sundays. Okay? I've tried it. It doesn't work. They did meet on a Sunday night in Acts 20, verse 7, but Sunday night was really their Monday, wasn't it? That's interesting. Now, they'll always quote, people are on this kick, they'll always quote 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay by him store as God has prospered him. Why? Paul says, so there will be no gatherings when I come. So if you're going to build your case on that, that's the only thread they've got to try to say, gee, we should, you know, that they worshiped on a Sunday. No, they collect, did their collection on a Sunday, so they wouldn't be collecting when Paul was visiting. There's another thing. They always assert that we never see Christ meeting with his disciples on any other day. Well, that's not true, because in John 20, verse 26, after eight days, he appears again. Well, you don't get eight days between Sundays, right? So, anyway. Now, everybody says, well, what did the early church do? You want, I'll be frank with you. I don't care what the early church did. Uh, I've read, I, 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 I had a whole bunch of slides of what Irenae, all, all, all these different church fathers, and they all have different views. You, you sort through all that, you don't get a clear picture anyway, but you also have another problem. When you read the seven letters, seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, the thing that leaps out at you is everyone, every one of those seven churches was surprised by the report card. So they couldn't have been on track. They all had some problem or another. Each was surprised. Those that thought they were doing well weren't. They weren't at all. Those that thought they weren't doing well were doing well. What I learned from those seven letters, among other things, a lot of other things actually, is that as early as 96 AD, the church was confused. So I wouldn't use them as the model. Book of Acts, sure, but later, I don't think so. We know from the early church they were full of errors. Oregon had his allegorical hermeneutics, which is clearly unscriptural, but laid the foundation for things like Augustine's amillennialism which became the eschatology of not only the Catholic Church, but the Protestant Reformed Churches as well. And anyone that reads studies the Scriptures, amillennialism is an indictment of the character of God. It says he doesn't keep his promises. So uh, there are problems. So I wouldn't use the church as the model. I use the, the Word of God as the model. By the way, something else you should be understand, the rising anti-Semitism in those early centuries makes their views about Sunday Sabbath suspect to me. Because this, 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 the Sunday Sabbath came about because of a Constantine, but I think it was welcomed by those that were anti-Jewish. You'll see why in a minute. Constantine, very, very important figure that shows up from, from about 274 to 337. Incredible leader, incredible emperor, Emperor Constantine. On October 27th in 312 A.D. in the famous Battle of Milvane Bridge, he, he apparently saw a vision that said, in this sign, conquer, and he defeated his enemies, which made him the ruler of the world. It was actually his dad was, but it's a, I won't get into all that right now. Um, he originally was a votary of the sun and gone to worship at the Grand Temple of the Sun in the Vosagas Mountains in Gaul, where he had his first vision, a pagan one. He's had several visions. Now, whether these were real visions he saw, maybe it were, or whether they were public relations stunts along the way, that was the style of that day, you know, uh, so I'm not here to quarrel that, but I want you to understand he came from a sun-worshipping background. Now, he ultimately, give him his credit, he ultimately abolished slavery. 
He abolished the gladiator fights. He abolished abortions, the killing of unwelcome children. This guy had, he was a very progressive guy. He abolished crucifixion as a form of execution. This is Constantine. That's impressive, especially when you understand the dismal history that preceded him. He was so frustrated with the paganism of the aristocracy in Rome, he moved the capital of the world to Byzantium. We named it the New Rome, Constantinople. Quite a guy. Now you need to understand what he was after. He was trying to unify this empire that he finds himself in charge of. He was faced with uniting an empire that had three forms of pagan sun worshippers. Set aside the Christians which were illegal and underground, but growing very, very broadly by the third century, fourth century. There was the Syrian solar cults of Sol Invictus, the unconquerable sun, and also another Assyrian cult called Jupiter Dolichinus, which is the Roman storm god. These are different, these are both sun worshippers, but of different kinds. There's also the Persian cult of Mithra, the ancient Iranian god of light. So there, yes, there's sun worshippers, but there's three different warring groups of these guys that all make up his, 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 his electorate. And uh, by the way, this is the same pagan pragmatism that Muhammad employed in syncretizing the 360 idols of the Kaaba in the worship of Al-Ilah in Islam. But that's another story, but it's the same kind of ground rules here of trying to provide some unity. So what does Constantine do? He, 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 in 313, he signs the Edict of Toleration. And by the way, let me explain the Edict of Toleration. He didn't make it the... What he, the, the Christians were illegal underground. He made them legal. He didn't make everybody Christian. He made it legal to be a Christian. That was a big break for them. Big break. Then uh, eight years later, he establishes Sunday as a special day of worship. Why Sunday? Because he's got three different groups of sun worshipers that will embrace that. He gives it to the Christians too, figuring that you know, they, they, they acknowledge the resurrection day. So it looked like, and it was, a unifying concept for the empire. A very practical thing to do. Now, by the time you get four years later, he exhorts the public to embrace Christianity. Doesn't make it compulsory. He just encourages people to become Christians. That may be just shrewd politics because of their numbers. All kinds of scholars have all kinds of views, and I'm not here to sort that out. I just want you to have a broader view than is often presented. In 337, he dies, but he's baptized on his deathbed, which to me casts a cloud on all these Christian visions he saw before. I think they may, they may, they may have been very simple, pragmatic, political, public relations. But he gets baptized on his deathbed in 337 before he dies. His successor is the guy that made Christianity the state religion in 380, 40 years later. He affirmed the dogmas of the Council of Nicaea, and he made church membership compulsory, the greatest tragedy the church had ever experienced. No regeneration here, just join, sign, sign, a, sign a card, you're in, you know, the whole, the whole deal. By 392, within 12 years, there's forcible suppression of all other religions all other religions. And the great apostasy of the church began. Now, if our perception of Revelation 17 and 18, 13, 17, 18 are correct, this ecumenical movement that we see going on a global scale 
will lead to a, again, a form of ecclesiastical tyranny that will be the climax of human history. And if you want background on this, I encourage you to get our briefing package called The Kingdom of Blood that Dave Hunt and I did together, or even better, get his book, The Woman Rides the Beast. There are some small points in there that I might not agree with, but that guy does his homework, and I think it's one of the best documented uh, exposés on that subject, so I encourage you to check it out. You know, Hegel's right. Uh, Hegel's famous for saying that uh, history teaches us that man learns nothing from history. We're going down the same path that they did in the fourth century, or will be, I should say. Well, we get the Sunday Sabbath. You see, no one's quarreling with honoring God on Sunday. That's appropriate. No one's quarreling with honoring God on Saturday or the seventh day. But only Christ has the authority to make an official change of Shabbat. He is the Lord of creation. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. And there's no such change highlighted in the Scripture. Christ was the creator, and that's what, that's what Shabbat honors. Both Saturday and Sunday both honor Christ. And Shabbat, of course, is originally a memorial of creation, but a work even greater than creation, namely the, the redemption, as, as uh, accomplished by him. Remember, the entire Jewish calendar was changed when they got out of Egypt. Before Exodus 12, their year started where they, on Rosh Hashanah in the fall. First of history. In Exodus 12, because of Passover, you make this month the beginning of months, the entire calendar, which that's why they have two calendars. So we naturally expect a change would take place uh, to make the Sabbath a memorial of a greater work. The trouble is you can't find any specific text that says so. Therein lies the ambiguity. That's why so many people have strong views both ways. There are people that are very comfortable making Sunday their Sabbath and fine. Others that really get upset. And I don't mean just the Seventh-day Adventists. There's lots of Messianic types and so forth. They're Gentiles, but they still, you know, crawl under the law, as some people would put it. Now, there are some prophetic implications that turns the apple cart right on over. Because just about the time you're comfortable with Sunday rather than Saturday, as most Christians are, you run into the fact that in Isaiah 66, the Sabbath, the Shabbat, will continue as the basis of worship in the millennium. When Christ comes back, remember, when he comes back, he's Jewish. And in the millennial temple, they will worship on Shabbat, not on Sunday, not the first day of the week, the seventh day of the week. In Ezekiel's temple, Ezekiel 46, verse 1, the gate to the inner court is closed six days of the week, open only on Shabbat and on the day of the new moon. So you got this Jewish coloration of the thing, okay? And uh, so... That causes us to realize that there hasn't been, whatever changes may have occurred during the church period, fine, well, and good, they're not that permanent, apparently. See, in Isaiah 66, it says, For the new heavens and the new earth, which will I make, God says, shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain, and it shall come to pass that from one new moon to the other, and from one Shabbat to another, shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. Really? All flesh, not just Jews, all flesh. Ooh, wow. Ezekiel 46. Just take the first verse, but the whole chapter's on this. Thus saith the Lord God, the gate of the inner court that looketh toward the east shall be shut the six working days, but on the Shabbat it shall be opened, and in the day of the new moon it shall be opened. Most scholars take for granted that the, the temple in Ezekiel from 40 to 48 is uh, the millennial temple. So if that's true, and I think it is, this uh, points out it will be very Jewish in its, in, its, in its calendar. So where are we is the question. 
I'm going to point out to you there's no grounds for imposing the Sabbath on a Christian who is free from the burden of the law's demands. Most of the New Testament can be mustered to support that thesis. The Spirit of Christ enables a Christian to fulfill God's will apart from the external observances of the law. So worship on Saturday if you like, fine. But not because you don't get under the law. Or you misunderstand the whole book of Romans, the whole book of Galatians, etc., etc. The writer to Hebrews really unravels this for you if you read it carefully. The writer of Hebrews alludes to the Sabbath as a foreshadowing or a type of God's rest, which is the inheritance of all people of God. So it has a prophetic, broader, spiritual implication. We're urged then, in a larger sense, to strive to enter into that rest, not the Sunday, not, not the Sabbath rules, but to, to, to rest and trust and abide in God's uh, provision for you. Well, let's move back to the text and move on, because there's more to the chapter than we've covered. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now this, incidentally, is the first of ten teledots, or generations. There's ten in the book of Genesis. This is the first of ten. This is the gener what you've seen so far is like, a, it's, it's, it's sort of like a family tree of the heavens and the earth. But something very interesting, it says that uh, in the day that the Lord God, that's the King James way of rendering, you'll notice all through the, uh, the English Bible, you'll find different words, whether it's... Uh, the Lord God, different, they, they use that term to translate Yahweh Elohim, which is the covenant name. This is very strange to be here. Elohim, we're familiar, that's the creator God. The Yahweh, or Yehovah, however you want to call it, the unpronounceable name of God, the Tetragrammaton, is the covenant name. God uses that when he's talking about a covenant relationship to the people. That tells me by a very convoluted line of reasoning that Adam wrote this. And I'll show you why in another minute. Uh, from, verse, from, from the last part of verse 4 to uh, first verse of chapter 5, many scholars believe it was written by Adam himself. I'll show you some verb tenses that seem to say the same thing. Let's move on. Verse, next verse. Uh, and every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew, and the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. Notice there's no such thing as rain. So you, begin, you can begin to understand when you get to chapter 6 and Noah and all that, he said it was going to rain. It wasn't like they were used to having rain. There was, they never had rain. The whole hydrological cycle was different. We don't know much about it. There's all kinds of conjectures. The Institute of Creation Research down in San Diego has a whole thing they do about what, canopy theory and all this. And I'm not here to knock it. It's controversial in its own right from, from various people. But the point is... It does say here, did not, it did not rain, there's not a man to till, uh, to till the ground, but there went up a mist from the earth. It watered the whole face of the ground. So somehow, the whole vegetation, plant, animal, kingdom, the whole thing was different. And uh, apparently didn't need care. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, wow, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. You know, it's very interesting. He formed the man of the dust of the ground. Now, it's not obvious except to a very experienced scientist, but all the ingredients in your body can be found in the ground. Most of it's carbon, hydrogen, 
oxygen, calcium, and a whole bunch of trace elements. But it's interesting, they are in the ground. Now you say, how do they know? You know, there was it a wild guess? You know, it, it, it's not an obvious kind of observation, especially when you push it to the limit and say, is it really true? Let's count the atoms. So, and, and under scientific inquiry, they verified it. It's very strange. And uh, now, putting the elements together doesn't make it alive. God made it alive. It's interesting that nobody has ever made a single cell. Every cell on the planet Earth derives from a previous cell. They've never been able to create, they've played around creating certain proteins and stuff. I won't start, I won't go down that path, right? We've been through enough of that. But the point is, understand that this is unique. And by the way, understand something else. Adam is designated in Luke as a son of God, a direct creation of God. You and I are not, unless we're born again. That's a whole other thing. We're sons of Adam, not sons of God. Adam's very unique, very distinctive. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. Where was the garden with respect to Eden? East of Eden. Now most of us take for granted that the Garden of Eden is roughly in the area of the Fertile Crescent. Euphrates, Tigris, all that business. Okay, let's grant that. If that's where the Garden of Eden was, where was Eden? West of there. Garden's east of Eden, so Eden must be west of the garden. You with me so far? What is west of the Fertile Crescent? Israel, yes. I'm not suggesting that that's Eden exactly, but suddenly I'm kind of intrigued with the fact that there's a particular piece of real estate on the planet Earth that God calls his own. His own. He's put his name on it. And he's granted that to Israel as tenants under condition of obedience. It does not belong to the PLO, it does not belong to the UN, it belongs, and we mess around in our foreign policy, we're poking our finger in the eye of God. That piece of real estate has some very, very peculiar origins and it has a very, very manifest destiny. But let's move on, verse uh, 9. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight, good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We're going to hear more about that next the next session. But there's two particular trees here that at least uh, are, are singled out. Uh, uh, just a piece of review. Uh, back, back where we were in Genesis 1.29 and all the way here to Genesis 2.9, there's a passage of Scripture. The last part of chapter 1, the early part of chapter 2. You with me so far? We looked at this last time. If you look at the Hebrew and put it on a computer, you'll discover that encrypted in the Hebrew by just equidistant, equidistant letter sequences, are 25 trees that appear in the Bible. And um, what's fascinating to this is that they're, not only do they happen to appear in the Bible, encrypted, they all cluster around the text that talks about the trees. Now the chance of that being accidental is absurd. It's acute. I don't know what you do with it. It doesn't give you some new insight, except I think it's a fingerprint of the Holy Spirit. That the structure of the language itself has these little things hidden away in it. Let's move on because time's getting on. Verse 10, And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became four heads. The name of the first was Pison, that is it, which encompassed the whole land of Havilah, wherever that is, uh, where there is gold. <laughs> and of course, everybody's trying to figure out where Havilah is because there's apparently gold there, gold in them of our hills. 
I'll tell you why you waste your time to do that, but we'll go on here. And the gold of that land is good, and there's Bedillium and the onyx stone. And the name of the second river is the Kion, and it is, it is uh, the same it is that compassed the whole land of Ethiopia. Don't, we don't look at that as Ethiopia. That's really the, the word is Kush. It's a, it's a, a region. Um, and the name of the third river is the Hittikel, which from Assyrian monuments, by the way, uh, and is that which goes toward the east of Assyria, but also from Assyrian monuments, we, we equate the Hittikel with the Tigris, by the way. At least there's a basis for that. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. It's fa fascinating to me. The others were explained. Euphrates didn't need to be. I think that's interesting. In other words, it was well known, see. And uh, right, let's see, a couple, just, just a couple other things I want to pick up here. Uh, in 2 Peter 3, verse 6, Peter says, the world that then was perished. So from the flood of, not just from Genesis 3, but from the flood of Noah, the world's changed completely. You need to understand that, so don't waste your time looking at maps of these things. The Lord God took, took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to address it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Or in the Hebrew, it actually says, uh, dying, you shall, dying you shall die. Now, um, a couple of quick observations that will be more important next time, but realize where was Eve when the commandment was given? Huh? She hasn't been created yet. Adam's alone. The commandment goes to Adam. How did Eve learn about the commandment? From Adam. Right. And, and, and the, the story is going to hang heavily on that issue. And the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. How long do you think that took him? More than a few days, I suspect, right? You know, we sort of get often figure, well, that, you know, what do you do? Okay, great, that's what we in the morning. What do you do in the afternoon? I, no, these, yeah, okay. And Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the fowl of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a help meet for him. Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of the ribs, one of his ribs closed up the flesh instead thereof, and the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he woman and brought her unto the man. By the way, this is another refutation of evolution, incidentally. There's no way. <laughs> anyway, okay. I mean, some people, some Christians try to reconcile evolution with the Bible. You can't do it. They're two different things. Um, and by the way, see the word, Ish is the name for man, and Isha is the name for woman, but anyway. Um, deep sleep. There are some scholars that speculate or conjecture that he may have, God may have had him die and raised again. It doesn't, doesn't say that, but it could include that. We don't know. Um, and he slept. But see, that, that's used as a euphemism in several other places. And he took one of his ribs. The word actually is tzela. It's from his side as such. And uh, the, um, Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and, the two sh and they shall be one flesh. Now, this little section here is God's first institution 
institution of marriage. Christ teaches about marriage extensively always from these verses. He quotes this in Matthew 19 and Matthew 10, excuse me, Mark 10, and um, he quotes these very, pass these very passages. Um, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother. Notice there's a concept of leaving as well as cleaving here. Many marriages are messed up because there hasn't been the leaving by one or both of the partners. And shall cleave to his wife. His wife, not somebody else's wife, his wife. Don't explain that to Hollywood, I guess. And uh, they shall be one flesh. And they're both naked, man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Most of us take that in humanistic terms. It may be something far more profound in the sense that they walked with God and were probably clothed. Remember, they were sinless at this point. They may have been clothed with light. The whole um, uh, situation here is probably could be far more. The, whole, the fact that once they sinned, they realized they're naked doesn't mean they got some insight necessarily. It means they something changed that they were sensitive to. So let you work on that a little bit. Now, a couple of other issues here to draw from this. The marriage is instituted. Christ bases the thing on this passage, Matthew 19 and Mark 10. He quoted these verses. It has one wife. One wife is in view in God's plan, God's perfect plan. It's heterosexual. It's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve here. Okay. You know, it's astonishing to me to understand or to, to behold, I should say, I don't understand it, to, under, to, to behold the ba spiritual bankruptcy of our judicial system. The fact that these things can even be discussed is revolting and betrays the total spiritual bankruptcy of the people in the legal profession. Uh, uh, just astounding. When uh, uh, R R Judge Roy Moore has, has his problems in Alabama, I don't understand why there aren't hundreds of thousands of Christians storming those steps over the Ten Commandments. Anyway, let's move on. The marriage is supposed to be heterosexual and permanent. And Matthew 19 lays this out very crisply. And uh, something else that is also very uncomfortable to many Christians, let alone the public at large, God intended the man to be the head of the union. It's not a partnership. He's the head. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 8 and 9. 1 Timothy 2, verse 13. And it's all we're going to also talk about next time, Ephesians 5, 22 and following. And it won't be popular. There will be many people, even in this audience, that may be saying, yeah, Chuck, I, I've listened to you up till now, but we just, we just parted ways here, you know. Um, that's clearly what the Scripture teaches. And many of the strange things in Paul's epistles derive from his attempt to emphasize the fact that there is a chain of command between God, the man, and then the family. And the uh, wife is his executive officer, but he's the skipper. Now, some guys abrogate that by not fulfilling their role. That's a whole other discussion. But the point is that that is God's perfect model. All of us are a long way from God's perfect model anyway. So if there's people among us that are divorced or in a second one, uh, Christ died for all our sins, all of them. And uh, I'm not trying to make anyone in a second uh, marriage uh, uh, uncomfortable. But from the scripture, it's clear that God's model, what his plan uh, lays out. Adam is the first Adam. What does that mean? Because there is a last Adam. What is his name? Jesus. Jesus Christ. Adam is a son of God. Luke 4, verse 38, designates him that because he's a direct creation of God. You and I are, are 
sons of Adam and therefore subject to death. But um, if you're born again, see, Jesus came unto his own, but his own received him not. John 1, verse 11 and 12. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. Once you really understand what that term means, then you are, see, then you're in Christ and so forth. There really is, there's a whole second um, creation here. A new, you're a new creation if you're in Christ. Adam is a figure of him to come, and he says so in Romans 5.14 and 2 Corinthians 5.21, but you have no idea until we get to the next chapter of how far that goes. But a couple of hints to us before we get there. The bride that Adam had was paid for by a wound in his side. Do you notice that? Does that ring familiar to a spear in the side of our Lord on the cross? Ooh. Oh, I got some vibes, huh? There are Gentile brides in the scripture. It's interesting, you know, Eve and Adam, of course, Rebecca and Isaac, Asenath and Joseph, Zipporah and Moses, Rahab and Salmon, and Ruth and Boaz. Remember, Boaz's mother was Rahab. She was a Moabitess. You have, in each one of these cases where there's a type or a model or foreshadowing of a Gentile bride, it's interesting to me that there's no death recorded. I don't say they didn't die. Don't misunderstand me. But the Holy Spirit, in many, many ways, we're going to be astonished in the book of Genesis how the Holy Spirit seems to intervene to edit the text so it fits a larger model. Obviously, these women died. Don't misunderstand me. But their deaths are not recorded because in each one, in a certain way, is a type of the church. That's going to be kind of fun as we go through. Next, next chapter is going to be chapter 3. You study it intensely for the next time. It's the seed plot of the entire Bible in chapter 3. We'll, we'll encounter the Nachash, the shining one, who later becomes the serpent. The forbidden fruit will be talked about. It wasn't an apple, despite all due respect to Peter Jennings or these others. We'll understand the methodology of deception that's used there because it's the, it's the same methodology we encounter every day. First doubt, yea, hath God said? Did he really say that? And then denial. He shall not surely die, and so forth. Same pattern today. And then we'll encounter God's declaration of war. Not Satan's, God's declaration of war. And it involves two seeds, not just the seed of the woman, the title of Jesus Christ, the kinsman redeemer, but the seed of the serpent. Exciting stuff. Up till now, is just a prelude. Now the book starts shifting into gear, and it's going to get wilder the wilder we go. So let's stand for a closing word of prayer. I love this book. Now, as you study the book of Genesis, and I assume you stay, keep reading ahead so it all tie together, understand your challenge. If you were taking notes or getting an exam, I want you to find Jesus Christ on every page. The book of Genesis is exciting, not because of the physics. We've been through enough of that. It's exciting for lots of reasons, but not the least of which you'll discover, and you need to discover it for yourself, that Jesus Christ will emerge in every detail, on every page, in every situation, impacts your understanding of our kinsman redeemer. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for bringing us together to study your word. We thank you for this opportunity. But we thank you above all things, Father, for your word becoming incarnate and dwelling among us and paying the price of our failures and our sin our failures of omission as well as commission. We, we just thank you. You've gone to such extremes for our benefit. 
And Father, we would ask, though, that through your Holy Spirit, you would reawaken in each of us a new passion, a new hunger, a new appetite for your word, that we each might continue to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. We thank you, Father, for our goel, that kinsman redeemer promised there in the twilights of Eden and achieved on that wooden cross some 2,000 years ago. We thank you, Father, that we're on the threshold of him taking possession, how we applaud that day. And yet, Father, we would ask you to help us prepare ourselves and also to be more effective stewards of the opportunities that you've tailored for each of us as we commit ourselves into your hands without any reservation, not to a set of rules or laws which would do no more than highlight our failures, but rather, Father, by our spirit, that it might be just in tune with you. Help us to be in step, in resonance with your heart and not our own designs. As we just commit ourselves this night without reservation into your hands, in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we've been talking about the Sabbath, and obviously there are many views, many well-intentioned people over the years have had their own spin on this whole thing. On the one hand, uh, uh, it's been our pattern as Christians to worship on Sunday, and that has its historical roots. And yet, of course, we really have to acknowledge that the ordination of the Sabbath really goes back uh, earlier uh, to Genesis, actually, even though it became, in Exodus 20 on, also an emblem of Israel. So where are we today as Christians? Where are we? Well, first of all, let me summarize just one person's view, our view, and it doesn't mean it's correct. But we feel there are no grounds for imposing the Sabbath on the Christian, because we're not on the law. The Christian is free from the burden of the law's demands. The Spirit of Christ enables him to fulfill God's will apart from the eternal, excuse me, external uh, observances of the law. So the, the, that's one thing that Paul emphasizes in, in all his, his letters, and he hits it pretty hard, it's in Colossians 2 and so forth. The writer to the book of Hebrews, I believe it was Paul, but that's neither here nor there. The writer of Hebrews alludes to the Sabbath as a type of God's rest, which is the inheritance of the people of God. In Hebrews chapter 4, the first dozen verses deal with this. And it's clear that we are urged in that epistle, in a much larger sense, to strive to enter into that rest that the Sabbath was a type of. And so there's a deeper spiritual aspect the Sabbath in a prophetic fulfillment sense. So that means that relieves us from the typical legalism that many people uh, find themselves drawn into. Many Christians get very enamored with Messianic fellowships, and that's great, but there's a very short leap from that to getting in under the law. So here's a few conclusions. The Sabbath was instituted for man at the creation, and it preceded the law. So it's not simply part, it's not that simple, it's part of the law. The Sabbath, furthermore, that's what shocked me when I discovered, will survive the church, uh, period. We see that in Matthew 24, 20, but also in Isaiah 66, 22, where the, all the nations are going to come to Jerusalem to, work, uh, to, uh, to observe the, the Feast of Tabernacles and the Sabbaths. And also Ezekiel 46 points out that the temple is going to be closed. The inner court will be closed, except on uh, Shabbat and the new moons. 
And by the way, so you understand that here's the critical thing that's even more, in my mind, more critical than the Sabbath itself. Our conformity to rules is not the basis of our salvation. You need to understand that. If you don't understand that, you really have some very fundamental things to unravel in the Scripture. The Sabbath is a time of devotion, not a subjection to rules. So if you're going to keep the Sabbath, it's got nothing to do with how many buttons you push on an elevator or whether you build fire that day or what have you. So we do need to recognize that we worship a Jewish God. And uh, salvation is of the Jews. Jesus himself says in John 4, all of our benefits, yours and mine, as Gentiles, derive from the Abrahamic covenant. We need to understand that for lots of other reasons. We are grafted into the true olive tree. And we should not forget that we serve the king of the Jews. Yes, he's king of kings, but he's, a king, he's also uh, son of David. We are members of the church founded by Jewish leaders, and we worship from our highest authority is a Jewish Bible. With the exception of what? Daniel 4, written by Nebuchadnezzar, and uh, the passages by Luke, best of my knowledge, the rest of it was written by Jews. It's very Jewish. So we're free of the law, but we still... We may free the law, but we still enjoy the benefits of creation, and that's what the Sabbath was intended to commemorate, was the creation. And so you and I have an advantage. We have two days available to us. We have the seventh day to commemorate the creation, if you will, and put it that way, and we also have Sunday off, for most of us, that is the day to celebrate the redemption, or the resurrection. And so both of these are appropriate. And uh, even though Sunday's role as a day of worship is historically argumentable. That's neither here nor there. It's a day where we can stop and, and celebrate the resurrection. Now the question that lurks in each of our minds is can we enjoy the benefits of the Sabbath without coming in under the law? That's the key. I found most people in one or two cases. They either don't acknowledge the Sabbath or they're caught up in a whole rules thing. And uh, so you say, gee, Chuck, what do you guys do? Well, we have three rules. And then I have decided there's three rules. And we keep them very imperfectly, by the way. <laughs> From Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, we attempt to set the time aside for study, meditation, and a departure from our usual routines, whatever they are. Now, it gets a little gray because our usual routine is studying because that's what we do. We write and speak and so forth. But still, from Friday sundown to, to, to Saturday sundown, we try to make it separate. Sometimes, frankly... We have a little RV that we got, and we'll go out to Farragut, which is about, you know, less than an hour away. We've reserved a place there, and we'll just use that as to psychologically get away. We still have our laptops on the dinette table, and we're still, you know, looking up scriptures and doing things that, uh, in a sense, are our work product. And our refuge there is the, the priests of the temple also worked on Shabbat, okay? So, so uh, but we try to set that time aside, most of the time, separate from our normal routines. That's rule number one. Number, rule number two, we resolve that whatever we do do, we do together. She doesn't do her thing and I do my thing. We both may decide to study our separate things, but whatever we do, we try to do it together. You with me? That's rule number two. Rule number one, we set the time aside. Rule number two, we try to do whatever we do together. Rule number three, you can guess what it is. There are no other rules. <laughs> and obviously because of travel schedules and other pressures, uh, this often gets clobbered. This good intention often gets clobbered because I'm catching a plane or she's catching a plane or whatever. But basically, our approach to life is to try to set aside Shabbat, Saturday, as a time for the Lord. Not by obeying rules. You know, we, we, we cook dinner, whatever. More often, I'll try to take her, take her out to something, not, not, not something necessarily too extravagant, but still give her a break, too. But 
we try to make it a special day. But not just a special day of rest, a day of focusing on him. That's really what we're all about. And so that, uh, that will not satisfy the Seventh-day Adventists. <laughs> and it certainly has caused some concern among some of our friends in the more traditional commu Christian communities. Uh, but that's our compromise between the two. We try to observe both days. Um, our observation of Sunday is usually uh, 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 highly varied because we have so many churches that we're tangled up with. We're not regularly at any one. We sp spread our time with different ones. Um, so we're, we have a peculiar lifestyle from that point of view. But we try to make uh, Shabbat Saturday, not because we're Jewish. Not, we're not a messianic fellowship per se. I can tell you frankly, if we were going to do a, we, we resolved when we moved this uh, geography that we were not going to compete with the churches. We we're going to try to be a backstop or a backup uh, to them. So that's why we don't do things on Wednesday nights or Sunday nights because that's when most churches have something going on. That's also why we have not organized another fellowship here in this area. Because uh, we, again, we didn't want to, we wanted to help rather than compete with the, the, the existing fellowships around here. And we resolved we've done that for 10 years the way we're doing it. In fact, we're probably better known nationally and internationally than we are locally, frankly. But in any case, um, the, uh, um, if we were, frankly, if we were going to do a church thing, I frankly would probably organize it on Friday night. Because it's, I think, scriptural. I think that's when they did meet, was Friday night. But I'd do it for some pragmatic reasons. That leaves the weekend free for the families and projects and camping, whatever. And uh, so, anyway, that's our mindset on it. Doesn't mean we're right, but people have been asking, so I thought I would include this in the uh, sessions. So, God bless you.